you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the big show. My family and friends, we love you. We love all the people that have come by the show and spent some time with us today. We thank you for inviting us into your heads, your hearts, your homes, wherever the hell, your workplace, uh, your cars, wherever the hell you're listening to the show. Maybe you're listening on the beach for all I know. Uh, you know, wherever, wherever you listen to the show, it's totally legal. In all states, and I think it's uh, legal around the world. We'll have to check some of the laws. But uh, is wherever the wherever Interpol doesn't have a arrest warrant out for the Chris Voss show, it is legal to listen to the Chris Voss show. I don't know what that means. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. We have an amazing author on the show. But in the meantime, uh, educate your friends, family, and relatives because smarter people make it so you want to strangle them less. We all have those family members, don't we? Uh, refer them to the Chris Voss show at uh, youtube.com forward chess Chris Voss, goodreads.com forward chess Chris Voss, and LinkedIn. Dot com for says Chris Foss. We're over there on the TikTok. Check out our new AI podcast and leadership podcast as well. He is the author of the amazing new book that's coming out July 15th, 2023, Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles and Groundbreaking Cases. It tells his life story of a journey as an attorney and, of course, his experience in life. James J. Brosnahan is on the show with us today to talk about his amazing book and everything that went into it. He is a member of the California Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame, is a federal prosecutor and defense lawyer who's tried 150 trials. He was a senior partner at Morrison and Forster, a preeminent 1,000 lawyer international law firm based in San Francisco. For 46 years, he has lectured internationally for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. He has authored articles for the American Constitutional Blog, Law 360, the California Historical Society, the Daily Journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg's Law, and Los Angeles Times. He's appeared on national radio and television, including ABC, CNN, Fox News, Larry King. I love Larry King. Or I did. I still do. Uh, national Public Radio and PBS. And now he's finally reached the pinnacle of his career. He is on The Chris Foss Show. Welcome to the show. How are you, James? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming, my friend. And uh, give us a .com, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs. Uh it's Jim J. Brosnahan, B-R-O-S-N-A-H-A-N dot com. There you go. And so, uh, you know, you've read it, lived a storied career here, James. Uh, what motivated you want to write this book from your words? I, I, I wanted to write a book that would give the readers a different view of lawyers. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of books about lawyers. But the excitement of trial, particularly, I thought, was something I wanted to share with them, the suspense of trial mm. and what lawyers do. I mean, there's a side of lawyers that I'm not sure is represented in the public image. And I've known a great many wonderful lawyers, good lawyers. I've known some bad ones, too, of mm. course. But I wanted to share that with people. There you go. And to kind of open up the scope of, of what people's perception of lawyers are, 
Well, I think uh, it, it varies. The, the, uh, the concept of uh, contribution and representing people and helping people isn't always part of what people think about lawyers. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, a lot of things contribute to that too. And there's very legitimate points of view about, about lawyers. But there's the whole world that I also saw of lawyers who contribute their whole lives to uh, nonprofit work, for example, trying to protect children. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very common thing for lawyers to do. Doing pro bono, which is representing people with, that have no money. Mm -hmm. Homeless people. There are lawyers in San Francisco that I have met who specialize in representing homeless people. Now, that contribution in the, in the, to the profession is enormous. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so that's part, of, that's part of the book. Yeah, uh, we live in that. It is just how exciting these trials were at the, as I wrote it in the book. 150 plus trials. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, a lot of lawyers settle, so, you know, it doesn't even go to well, trial. Well, I know I, said I settled. Yeah. I don't know. I'm guessing, Chris, thousands of cases. Wow. You know, 60 years is a long time. But, and when it's in the client interest. But I had a lot of cases where there was good reason to go to trial. It might be a principle that the client believes in. Mm -hmm. It might be uh, to establish a precedent. I argued in the Supreme Court a couple of times. There you go. And, uh, that kind of thing. There you go. And so uh, what, what began your journey in life? Give me a little bit of your origin story so we understand what made you want to become an attorney and uh, go on this path. I saw the, the immediate trigger for that was uh, Joseph McCarthy was a senator from Wisconsin, and he was after communists uh, that very often didn't exist, but he made them into communists. He was a, a terrible person. And a lawyer from uh, Boston, from an old kind of, if I may say so, stuffy law firm, was appearing before him. And McCarthy was claiming that a young lawyer in, his, in this man's office was actually a communist because he was a member of the ACLU. And Welch leaned over the table on national television and he said to McCarthy straight away, do you have no shame? That was part of a turning point. I like that idea. And of course, then they loved Welch for that. He made a movie, I think, and, mm -hmm. and people just loved him for it. And I like that idea, too. It was such a great call out. I know. Yeah. So we need we need that guy walking around nowadays, going up to politicians, going, "Sir, have you no shame?" Uh, but yeah, what a, what a what a! I remember watching it on uh, movies, Did and you? I think yeah. Roy, I think well, not on movies, but the actual film itself. And yeah. I think Roy Cohn's sitting next to him. Yes, and he he just floors everybody with the comment where he says, "Have you no shame?" And it was a turning point in the McCarthy hearings. So tell us about your road to becoming an attorney and some of your first cases. Uh well, I became an attorney because a, a very nice man gave me the money to go to the Harvard Law School. Oh, wow. And a, a man I'd never seen before, his name was Henry Cabot. And I don't know how familiar you are with Boston, but Cabot is an old name, goes back to the shipping interests and all of that. I never met the man. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I got introduced to him by my father, who worked in a place where Mr. Cabot was. And Mr. Cabot said, you know, I've done some checking. This is what you'll need for your first year, and you'll be able to live in Cambridge, and that'll help you. And here's the check. Wow. Yeah. And I I saw him that one time. Uh, I paid off the money, I want you to know. And I would write him letters, you know. I just tried a murder case and this and that. Great generosity. Um, Wow. uh, It was was a funny thing that happened to me. When I got to Harvard Law School, there was another uh, student there standing next to me at a cocktail party. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a trial lawyer. He said, oh, you came to the wrong law school for that. (laughs) I was crushed. But I stayed. And uh, then my early cases uh, were as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And this is hard to believe even by me now, but the first case I had uh, was a first-degree murder capital case. Wow. I had been in the office two days. I never tried any kind of case. And Mm -hmm. the boss, we were very shorthanded. He said, there's a murder case on Monday. Will you try it? I said, yes. And I thought, how am I going to do that? (laughs) And the first tactical judgment I had to make was whether to ask for the death penalty. Now that I knew even that day that was all wrong, that I would have that kind of power uh, without real oversight, although the boss agreed with me. The defendants were juveniles. They had murdered another member of the Apache tribe and Mm -hmm. was on the Pima Reservation south of Phoenix. I tried the case, and I got... (laughs) I got two convictions. I got first-degree murder and second-degree murder. Of course, at that point, Chris, I thought, I really know what I'm doing. But (laughs) I didn't. I didn't have a... Law school had not prepared me anyway for that. Yeah. That's a heady case to take on as your first case. The tension, which I describe in the book, was enormous. Yeah. Um, it It was almost in disbelief that it was happening. And, um, but we got the convictions, and uh, one thing I knew, I really want to do a lot more of these these trials. I, lo- I love the action. Mm-hmm. I really did all the way through my career. I loved being in a courtroom with a judge, a jury, uh, opposing counsel, all of that. I loved it. Yeah. You know, we're a nation of laws, and I think a lot of people undervalue or don't understand uh, the importance of law, the importance of the Constitution and the freedom it gives to people. You know, no one ever appreciates a lot of that until uh, attorneys do, but a lot of people that don't practice law don't really appreciate until they get in trouble or cross with the law or end up maybe in a, a civil case or something. And then they, and they realize that, you know, being able to call a jury of your peers and defend yourself in a court of law uh, is a very important factor in American uh, law. It's terribly important. You almost can't go into a courtroom, any courtroom, go to any courthouse and go into a courtroom where they're having a case or where they're handling pretrial matters and something and see the importance, as you just said, of those transactions. What is the sentence the person's going to get? Are they going to get... Uh, 
will they be able to keep the custody of, of their child? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you start talking about that level of life-changing orders mm-hmm. from judges, you're, 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 it's a really serious situation. It makes all the difference in the world. And you've covered a gambit of uh, different various cases uh, that you've done in your career. Gender discrimination, freedom of the press, voting rights, refugees, sexual harassment, false imprisonment. Um, as is put in your PR kit, uh, mention any headline in the nightly news, and you have tried those cases. Uh, uh, even the Harvard legal giant Lawrence Tribe calls you the lion of law. That's got to be a great uh, moniker to have put Well, on coming you. from him, he, he must have got excited, Chris. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, really. But, but seriously, um, he, uh, he has been and is, even right now especially, he still comments and writes articles and uh, one of the great leaders of the legal profession, and I appreciated that that those kind thoughts, uh, especially from him. You've you've written a lot of cool chapters on a lot of different cases. Uh, you know, uh, the FBI rigged the evidence is the title of one chapter. An innocent man walks out of jail seventeen years later. How did you pick out of all the cases you've done as the as the ones you wanted to talk about in the book? Yeah, it's important for the book. I tried to pick the ones that had current press uh, interest. Mm-hmm. The Mexican border, I spent a good, almost a year on and off and six months in trial in Tucson, Arizona. And it was all about refugees coming from Guatemala and El Salvador. I interviewed uh, probably about 40 um, refugees, who they were, what their stories were. Mm-hmm. I, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because when political people, with all deference to them, mm-hmm. uh, start talking about the invasion of people, as they are doing right now, mm-hmm. they're missing an important point. The point of the trial was sanctuary. The religious people were trying to help these refugees, which is not only their religion, mm-hmm. it's not only in the Bible, but it's in international law, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's in our own asylum law. Mm-hmm. So I learned a great deal about that and, and uh, was, was quite moved by it. Yeah, and I mean, we're going through right now, Title 42, I think, expired today? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it's, night, I think, yeah, it's interesting that we refer to other human beings as an invasion, like they're a, yeah. a species of insect, or we devalue them in, in such a way. And yeah, this country is built on uh, immigrants. My grandfather, my great-grandfather was an immigrant yeah. to this country. He came uh, in the late 1800s from Germany. I yeah. wouldn't be here without him or be able to take advantage of the stuff. We are a melting pot of immigrants. And it's always interesting to me how it choose that way. And it's great that you tell stories in the book about uh, a panacea of different uh, experiences and different cases and stuff. Uh, tease out a few other things that you want to tease out about the book. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, the other stories in the book, for example, I prosecuted Casper Weinberger. Oh, wow. And... Um, that was that was quite something. Um, can you? Um, 
so uh, I was back in Washington and Weinberger was uh, finally pardoned by uh, President Bush. But the story that's in the book that has never come out oh, wow. is that Weinberger's uh, uh, lawyer advised the court that he was going to call um, uh, President Bush as a witness in the trial. Oh, wow. Hell yeah. And eight days after he advised him of that, uh, uh, Bush pardoned Weinberger. Mm-hmm. So it's quite, it's quite a story, and it, it includes how I felt uh, going around Washington interviewing senators and people of that kind. And it was all quite heady and interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a that's quite a case. Uh, and then you also argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, what is that like? That's that's got to be. Well, I did, and uh, you know, um, you get to put it mildly, you get nervous. I, I talk about how I felt the night before, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as a lawyer, I'd be in San Francisco, and I'd casually criticize some justice on the Supreme Court. You know, if we're talking among lawyers and so forth, but. Once you're standing at the lectern mm-hmm. and you're looking up at these nine people, mm-hmm. it's quite an event. So the first case I had, I'll keep this short, but uh, the first case I had was a constitutional case that involved privacy, but I knew they were pretty much going against me, and they were. They were against me uh, uh, seven to two, mm-hmm. and then... See, I knew Bill Rehnquist in Phoenix. I started in Phoenix as a federal prosecutor. And so uh, I argued before him. And then uh, about five years later, as I describe in the book, I received a call because I had witnessed Rehnquist at a polling booth uh, at a school in South Phoenix, and there were objections, excessive objections being made to people voting. It was a black and brown uh, neighborhood in Phoenix. Wow. And they wanted me to testify because Rehnquist is up for chief justice. So I tell them the book, the story, and I said, well, you know, I don't know. That was a long time ago. I don't know how he feels now and so forth. And they said, well, have you read his testimony? I said, no. And so I looked at it. And he had denied involvement. Oh. And so I asked my partners, and they all thought I should testify. Mm-hmm. I went back to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the middle of Rehnquist's uh, hearings, and I testified, and they kept me there for about Oh, three or four hours, I guess. And um, but I held my own, to put it mildly. And um, so, the point of this is that I got had another case in the Supreme Court. Now, Rehnquist is the Chief Justice. He's sitting in the middle of the justices. And uh, when I got up to argue, uh, he just rose, turned around, and disappeared behind the black curtains. Mm-hmm. And I argued to the eight justices that were left, and you have to read the book to see the report, but uh, it, 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 uh, it was okay for my client, let's put it that way. 
There you go. What do you think people are going to come away? What do you think folks are going to learn from the book? Uh, not only stories about your memoir and experience, but uh, what do you think big picture they might come away with? I think that justice is complicated. Where Where is it found? I think very often justice is found in trial courts mm -hmm. where I spent spent my 60 years. And I think there are specific examples of, of how the justice system works. Mm -hmm. I also think when each chapter starts, you really don't know what's going to happen because I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's a true crime aspect to it. I think there's a breadth to the book in the sense that uh, I, I tried a number of patent cases. I tried a, uh, a number of commercial cases of all kinds. So how does the system work? As you said a minute ago, the importance of the system in all manner of things is, is in this book. It took me three years to write it, and of mm -hmm. that, 11 months was spent editing and so I think it reads well, if I may mm -hmm. say so. And they get a real idea of the justice system, courts, juries, for example. I have a story in there about a juror who, um, I, won't, I won't give away the, the punchline, but he had a very red face. And when the prosecutor said these defendants were selling liquor at a low price, and that was that violated regulation. He just had this funny look on his face, like, "What's wrong with that?" Uh, you know. And so the story is in the in the book. Yeah. Uh, do you think uh, it'll be a great book uh, for uh, teach lessons to new attorneys or up and coming I, attorneys? I very too? much do. And as the book progressed, I actually say that at the end that. You know, what difficulties I had in, when I was young, I had some that are in the book. But um, uh, there may be young people out there, and I would love to see, frankly, this book in their hands, that the law is a good life. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that's my view. In some ways I was spoiled. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, I was lucky. I was very lucky. You mentioned a couple of my awards, and, and uh, you know, those, those are really nice unless I believe them. You know, if I believe them, it would be not good. All but right. um, uh, I was very, very fortunate that we need the legal profession. Mm -hmm. We need it right now as much as anything, and um, we need the judges. But they have to be fair, mm. have to sit up straight and do their job and not be biased and not be influenced by things outside of the case itself. It's a hard job to be a judge. My wife's a judge for 40 years, and my daughter's been a judge for about 10 years. Wow. It's a hard job. Yeah. Do you do you want to comment? I'll leave it up to you on on any thoughts about some of the Skoda scandals that have been going on lately, and uh, I don't know what you think about that. I uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm saddened uh, by the loss of prestige mm. by the court mm -hmm. uh, I, because they need 
prestige to function. Yeah. Uh, they have to have that. I'm hoping they will emerge. I think uh, having lived under a code of ethics my whole life, um, I, I wish that the court would quickly adopt a code of ethics. Yeah. Um, there, there's some arguments against it, but uh, frankly, I'm not impressed with those arguments. Mm -hmm. Every every judge below them is under a code. It's yeah. what you can do and what you can't do. And the appearance of impropriety for any judge is is cancels out their ability to do the job. Yeah. The people in the in the courtroom looking up at them have to believe that they're gonna try to do it not not politically. They're going to try to do it based on legal, maybe some morality comes into the decisions, but not, not religion particularly. Mm -hmm. So that, it saddens me that we're obviously, the public is now a little less sure about them than they were. Yeah, they're rock bottom at, at the, yeah. uh, the, how the public sees the court at any yeah. level. And, and you're right, I, I, I mean, I, I always thought they operated with an ethical code mandate that was written down like other judges and other people. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an extraordinary to see, and I think we're kind of scratching the surface. But, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's one of those things that have to be addressed. What's interesting to me is we have three separate branches and I think I understand why Justice Roberts didn't want to appear before the, the House Committee or, or Senate Committee or whoever called him, you know, because there's they're supposed to be a separation. But, you know, it, it always comes. It's like the police department, you know, who's who's watching the watchers uh, sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 an important thing. I, I've if I could go back uh, to my younger days, instead of starting companies, I would have gone and been an attorney because there's so really? much. That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's so much that you can do with the law, and I've always found it interesting. And uh, owning companies and building things, you know, I've I've had my share of shakedown lawsuits. So we've had to sue people, collect yeah, money. You sure? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've we spent a lot of time in civil courts back and forth, and uh, and then uh, I've I've. I've defended my own speeding tickets in my BMWs that I may or may not have been speeding. Ah. Uh, and uh, one of the things we used to do with it is we would uh, spend a lot of time appealing it. And uh, there's kind of a trick that you have that you have three years that it sits on your driver's license, but it doesn't appear there until you're convicted in trial. So you peel the hell out of it for three years, and then by the time it shows up yeah. on everything, yeah, yeah. uh, so you know I learned the power of attorney uh, law, and uh, I, I love it. It's a it's it's a really interesting thing. Um, it's it's an important thing, and you're right. Once people do not believe in the rule of law that keeps us from being a medieval culture where we just have marauders running around, um, you know, it's it's the thing that separates us from chaos. Every every lawyer has the power of a device, mm -hmm. and very often the client is vulnerable and dependent on that advice. People think that CEOs and big corporate people and so forth aren't. Uh, it's, it's not emotional for them. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, I have represented a number of chief executive officers of large corporations. If they're going to lose their corporation, uh, it's not in the book, but I represented a mining company, and if they lost that case, they'd lose their mine. Wow. M-I-N-E. And um, so 
uh, that's, you know, I had a funny reaction when I wrote this book. I look back over the whole 60 years and I was kind of saying to myself, how did I do that? I mean, the emotions of almost every case, drug cases are very dull. I don't have a drug case in the book, although I tried some. They're very dull, but other than that, the issues are so meaningful to people. Uh, even, you know, if, if take for example, your license is gonna be suspended, mm -hmm. okay? You can't get to work or huh? you have to drive illegally, which a lot of people unfortunately do. Yeah. And, you know, there's one other thing being with this many people was, and it did go back to my childhood, it was very exciting for me to be out there and meet all kinds of people. I represented people from the abjectly poor up to uh, some of the most powerful corporate people in the corporate world. And I just enjoyed at some level meeting the different kinds of people that you can meet in the law. And that's one thing you talk about the young young people mm -hmm. in the book. I do encourage them to think about, you know, maybe they should be a lawyer. Yeah. And we, we probably need more lawyers. Does, is it still a growing profession? I know a lot of these young Gen Z people, they just want to be TikTok influencers. So, uh, you know. Hopefully, there's there's people that are going to support the defense and rule of law in the future. I think so. There you go. There you go. Well, it's it's a wonderful dream. Uh, anything more you want to tease on out before we go? Uh, no, I think uh, I think the book uh, flows pretty well and it, it takes the reader into many different places. Hawaii, for example, New Mexico. Uh, different kinds of cases, how juries react. I think the reader gets a pretty good picture of the reality of trial law, certainly. And the, the, the last point that I would make is just this. Um, recently, for example, uh, a, a man was accused, he happened to be a lawyer, he was accused of murdering his uh, wife and his son. And next to him were two lawyers. And it is one of the things that comes across in the book. Why are they doing that? I mean, they could, they could do wills. Why do trial lawyers uh, take their time, make their living representing some people who are in such deep trouble? What is that? What is that? And I, my answer to it is that w trial lawyers are different than other people. Mm. We are, some of us are outsiders and the, the, the medical and academics problems that I had as a kid uh, is an example of that we're in the process of being outsiders, but we want to help people. We want to try to save them from whatever it is. But I do thank you for having me on your show. Thanks so much. And thank you for coming on. It's been an honor to have you and the insight that you've had there. And hopefully you'll inspire more people to understand law, to appreciate it and the value of it, and uh, probably inspire some future great attorneys. I hope so. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Jim, for being on the show. Give us a .com so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Uh, JimJBrosnahan.com. There you, you go. There you go. Uh, order it up, folks. Wherever fine books are sold, you can pre-order it now. Uh, it's out July 15th, 2023. You can be the first in your book club to read it. Uh, Justice at Trial. Courtroom battles and groundbreaking cases. Without the rule of law, folks, remember, we descend into a medieval marauding gangs running around. It's it's the thing that has brought us to a modern society. So uh, please support it and learn more about it. Uh, read the Constitution. Damn it. All of you, go read the Constitution today, please. It's a good read. It is a good read. It's, it, and it's amazing how simplistic it was written and, and uh, easy to understand. But then it's amazing how complex, uh, you know, legal tort system has been built upon it but uh what a beautiful document and if you if you run around saying that you quoting the constitution make sure you've read it <laughs> i always love people that that uh, i had a guy uh who made a comment once and he's like he's like you know we don't need the constitution we just need the uh second amendment uh, and and i'm like do you understand that without the constitution you don't have the amendments like uh it's built upon, you know, so it's good. You know, I, I had a 300-pound man. I was playing poker in Las Vegas, which I uh -huh. believe you, you're familiar with. Yeah. And uh, I had the Constitution in my pocket, and he got up from his seat. I thought he was going to punch me out or something. And he said, uh, you got the Constitution? I said, yes, sir, I have the Constitution. He said, it's got the Second Amendment in there? I said, yes, sir, and it does. He says, good, all right. And he didn't ask about any of the other things that I'm sure he may have uh, been very negative about. I mean, uh, I hope it's in there. It's, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's interesting what people quote. Yeah. Uh, you know, I you hear these people, they're like, it's unconstitutional. I'm like, have you read the Constitution? Because it's what you're quoting, you know, whatever their, whatever their political rap is. Anyway, thank you very much, Jim, for coming on the show. Thanks thank for, you. for tuning in. Uh, go okay. to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss. See us over there on TikTok, too. We're trying to be cool. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time. And that should have a